Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about media coverage of the China-Africa story, and in particular, a, a very distinctive voice that has merged on, on, on the scene coming from London, and in part because... For the past, say, six or seven years that you and I have been covering this topic, we've noticed that the international press has had a distinctly kind of skeptical, cynical, and really not a um, what I would call a, a very nuanced view of the China-Africa story. And in part because you and I have talked about this at length, Kobus, uh, a, there's a lack of sophistication either of China or of Africa that often come from many journalists in Western newsrooms, particularly from London and New York and Paris. And you've talked about this in many ways, Kobus, as a result of the fact that uh, there just is a general lack of, of awareness on, on the subject. What you frequently find is that Western journalists tend to test the China-Africa relationship according to Western standards and then make long lists of how they, it doesn't confirm, conform to those standards. And what we've been pushing is the idea that it, in a lot of ways the relationship is unique. Um, so it is very nice to hear someone that, that brings that kind of nuance to the conversation. Well, that someone that we're talking about is David Pilling, who is the Africa editor over at the Financial Times in London. Uh, David is really an ideal source for our show and a guest on our program, in part because he his background uh, is, is that rare journalistic background with experience in both Asia and in Africa prior to becoming the Africa editor at the Times. Uh, he was also the Asia editor and served as the Tokyo bureau chief for the paper for over six years. David, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us. Not at all. Thanks a lot for having me. We really appreciate it. So you, you've had a couple different headlines that caught our attention in some of your columns. Uh, Chinese investment in Africa, Beijing's testing ground, and another one being ports and roads means China is winning in Africa. And what I found interesting in your approach on, on, on these two columns was how you, again, you brought that nuance to the story. And I'm wondering if that was, you know, how that was received in the newsroom and by your editors and by your colleagues when you're actually bringing a more complex picture to the story than is normally seen by, by a lot of journalists. Well, I get pretty free reign at the FT, so I, I don't think anybody has, uh, has objected or even raised their eyebrows at my stories. Um, uh, I mean, one of the pieces you referred to was an opinion piece, so there I meant to express an opinion. And I guess my opinion, and the reason I use soft power is really because we do not think of China as having soft power. And indeed, in many senses, it doesn't have um, a strong soft power. But what I was trying to uh, get across was that um, uh, we may like to paint China's image uh, in in Africa as uh, in a sort of purely negative light. But in fact, when you go around, the picture is, as you say, much more nuanced. And while you do hear many criticisms of of, um, of, uh, of China, you also hear people saying, well, they're building stuff and they get things done. Um, they're better than, um, uh, than our experience uh, with the West in many cases. Um, but that was an opinion piece. Then there was a more sort of analytical piece and a longer piece, which is the other piece um, you referred to. Um, uh, but again, uh, you know, uh, there were many, many voices uh, in, in that piece, uh, people, Chinese people, um, uh, analysts who have been looking at this for a long time. And of course, many uh, and what I was trying to do was, yeah, was in a sense, yes, to um, to express the range of opinions and also to, I suppose, um, 
subvert a few of the uh, of, of the myths that I think have, have sort of taken hold. Which do you think are the most pernicious myths? Which myths do you feel, in, especially in the West, need to be challenged the most forcefully? Well, in a sense, my starting point is two, twofold, I guess. One is when we say, um, or when I, when some people say, you know, well, look, China is really bad. It comes in, it's just exploiting. It's, um, you know, it builds terrible roads, goes away with all these minerals, bribes uh, dictators, um, employs all Chinese labor, except, uh, you know, that's the kind of, and um, the standard picture. My first uh, sort of intellectual point is really, well, what did the West do? Uh, I mean, first of all, it colonized <laughs> Um, Africa and carved it up um, and then left it in a horrendous mess. Um, and then if you take the post-colonial experience, um, you know, it's been decidedly mixed, let's say, um, during the Cold War, you know, um, the West backed all sorts of um, uh, unmentionable parties, um, didn't have an entirely progressive view. People like Mobutu was a client of the West. Um, and then even post-Cold War, you know, um, certainly there have been many, many organizations that have tried to do good. I don't doubt that for one second. But the overall picture has been one, I would argue, in total of of, of failure. Um, you know, Africa is not where, and uh, uh, many African countries are not where we would necessarily like them to be, despite the fact that um, billions have been um poured in. Of course, billions have also been taken out. So point one is, um, before you start hurling rocks at China, let's just take a little look at, at um, our own record. And point two is really just China's development um, model itself. And, you know, of course, China is an authoritarian government. Of course, it has done um, bad things, um, um, especially during um, um, the Maoist um, era, where things like the Great, Great Leap Forward were absolutely horrendous missteps that led to millions and millions of deaths um, and even in the opening and reform period um you know that that there have been many many things from human rights and the environment and whatever that that we might want to criticize but and here's the the but um china has produced very rapid growth for 30 years which has improved the lives of tens of millions hundreds of millions of people and we have to accept that i think and um, and if they're bringing something of that to Africa for all its problems and, and for all the contradictions, then I think we have to take that seriously and not just view it as, you know, necessarily a, a sort of a neo-colonialist extractive exercise, but perhaps something that, um, that deserves um, us to look at in, in, in more depth. You know, David, one of the points that Kobus and I talk about is uh, is this battle for ideas. And in the West, there is this idea that after the Cold War, that, you know, liberal neoliberal democracy kind of won the day. And, and that was really, there is no more ideological divide in the world. Uh, but yet there is this model of governing and this economic model that China is presenting itself to countries like Ethiopia. Uh, certainly South Africa is embracing big swaths of the Chinese agenda. And it seems to me that in certain parts of Africa, there is, in fact, uh, a, a dilemma going on about whether or not people should follow a Western democracy model promoted by Europe and the United States or a more authoritarian capitalism model that is embraced by China. When you look at the continent as an observer, do you see this tension that's currently underway? And, and I'd like to get your take on, on that question in the context of Donald Trump. Um, okay. Uh, the, the last 
bit slightly through me, but I, I mean, what, what the first point to make, I think, is that clearly the end of history was declared and the end of history had not happened. There is still a battle for um, ideas, and we're seeing that within within America. Um, you know, the idea that that liberal democratic values were going to sweep the world um, is even being challenged um, in the in the one part of that in America um, uh, itself, where in many people's opinions, anyway. Um, you know, the country has taken um, a, a sort of a, a darker um, turn. So that's the first point to make. Um, in terms of, you know, do, do people look to the, you know, the Chinese model or the Western model? Um, uh, there is some of that that's that's gone on. But I think there is also, and we can talk about that if you like, but I think there's also something much more sort of practical, which is this choice. Um, you know, before, if you were um, uh, running uh, an African country with goodwill or with bad will or with something in between, um, you didn't have much choice. You had to deal um, uh, with the multilateral institutions. You had to deal with maybe your former colony or the, the Western countries that were interested in you. And that was about it. And um, now you've got a choice. You've got China has come in um, with a huge appetite for resources, if you happen to have resources. And if you don't, with a willingness to lend money, which of course can be dangerous, but but with a willingness to lend money and uh, and build stuff, and we shouldn't forget that there are other countries. There's India, there's Turkey, there are Brazil, there are other countries. So what what I think has been very important in the last fifteen or twenty years is that if you're sitting in a in a capital or indeed outside a capital uh, in an African state, you can look in different places. You can get people to come to compete for your business. Um, it's a much happier place to be in. So I think there is a battle of ideas and, and, and you know, there, there is a, an ideological battle going on here. And you can see that certain countries, you mentioned Ethiopia, Rwanda might be another, that have taken um, um, a certain direction and now can perhaps defend that um, by, you know, invoking the Beijing consensus or whatever. But it, Personally, I think I think more important than that. It's just that there's this choice. Is this? Is this? Uh, there are there are there are different buyers. There are different options. There are different lenders. And and if um, uh, African administrations are savvy, they can uh, they can use that to to their advantage. And that is that is the market that they've been being told about for so many decades. Well, here finally it is. So, and uh, um, that is something that that ought to be a plus. Over the last few months, we've seen the announcement of a new India-Japan development project, development corridor focused on, on African development. Um, and there's been a lot of, of commentary that in certain ways, Japan um, and other countries, their approach to Africa has been shaped or is you know that is changing due to the influence um, and the example of the China, the China-Africa relationship. Do you see the China-Africa relationship starting to change Western attitudes to Africa as well? Yes, I think so. Uh, I mean, Japan, I think, has always had a rather distinct attitude, so I wouldn't put it in the Western at, uh, Western attitude box. No, definitely. At least not, yeah. not in a kind of, sim- in a simple way. But but the Japanese thought that they, you know, they knew a thing or two about development, you know, in the way that China probably thinks it knows a thing or two about development um, and uh, and therefore could do things a little bit differently. I mean, the, the Japanese have not been, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I've had briefings from many Japanese officials who have um, criticised, let's say, the, the DFID, the UK type approach, which they see as too sort of um, 
soft development where you know they they have um, talked about the need for infrastructure and, and other things. They've, they've been less good at delivering that, but the Japanese have also done things um, a little bit quietly, as, as sometimes as they weren't. They haven't shouted about things as much as um, as maybe some of the others. And, and I think they have been taken aback because people do not talk about Japan um, uh, in Africa, despite the fact that they've held these huge um, conferences, the TCAD conferences, but they've definitely been trumped um, by China. I think they worry about that from a kind of PR point of view. Um, they do, you know, the, the official Japan, the, the Abe government, um, will tell its companies that there is more business to be done in Africa than um, uh, than you know, many of the companies might be aware, but unless they're the big trading companies, or unless they're trying to sell motorbikes, or there's some kind of really obvious thing, Africa does seem an awful long way away. It seems generally poor, and the Japanese tend to kind of over-engineer and are not particularly good at selling to um, um, poor markets. Uh, and it does look like a place with with huge political risk. And remember. These economies are still very, very small. I mean, that's one of the things that um, that I've been very aware of coming from from Asia. So, um, for example, um, the Taiwanese economy, which we didn't used to write about, in an enormous in enormous depth, um, because it was considered a pretty sort of small economy and more interesting as a political story. The Taiwanese economy is not much smaller than the Nigerian economy. It's on a par. So what was a kind of a marginal economy in Asia is, you know, the big, the big, uh, biggest economy along with South Africa well, and well, in well, Africa. So, um, sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry. But that brings up a very interesting point. And we, we've spoken with several Chinese analysts over the past few months who say that 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 the Chinese, and particularly the Chinese private sector, are, are losing interest in Africa. And this comes at a time when the Belt and Road Global Trade Initiative is coming up, the Asian Infrastructure Bank. China has a lot more ability, a lot more options now for investment than it did maybe 10 or 15 years ago when it started embracing Africa in a big way. And there are some indications that trade volumes between China and Africa are falling, that investment levels are not rising anywhere near that they were. And I guess my question for you is that if China decides or Chinese companies decide, you know, Africa is a high risk. It's a small market, as you pointed out, you know, directing their investment into Southeast Asia, into Central Europe and into the Persian Gulf. And even the United States and Europe is a better uh, option, a more secure option. What are the implications for Africa in that case? Um, I don't think that will happen, actually. Uh, China has huge surpluses, uh, both in monetary terms and in production terms. So if you look at, you know, steel output or whatever, um, Africa has been marginal anyway. I mean, it, it looks big from 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 the African sort of end of the telescope, but if you looked at it from the Chinese end of the telescope, it's relatively um, relatively small. Um, and of course, there has been a diminish a diminishing of the of, of trade, but that's really a function of commodity prices um, falling. I don't think there has been a diminishing of the um, uh, volume. Uh, of trade, but I see China as really in this in the long term for a number of reasons. One is I think they they have seen themselves go from being very poor to being far less poor, and they think that's perfectly possible. And while it might not happen all over Africa, I think they think it could happen um, in many other, um, you know, in in many countries. I think they also think, I guess, that um, 
that there's more wealth in Africa than than appears in the GDP statistics, which I think underestimate the amount of money that there actually is. So you might go to a very poor country and yet people can afford your mobile phones. So, you know, they've probably got experience on the ground where they can kind of flush out money and that doesn't appear to be there. But I think there is something else. And without and uh, without wishing to suggest that there is a kind of China Inc. policy, that there's a you know someone in Zhongnanhai sort of saying you know we can take Africa. I do think though that um, that there are people um, uh, um, in positions of power in China who, who look at the map of Africa and think, look, there's 50 countries, more than 50 countries, 54 countries. Um, that have really been underserved by their relationship with the West, both colonial and post-colonial. Um, they're not very big, but that means that we can have an outsized influence. And um, uh, there's strategic value there. Uh, the votes of the UN, the members of our own parallel institutions, say the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank or the BRICS Bank or whatever, uh, their potential, um, uh, you know, they, they provide potential for business for uh, construction companies and whatever, you know, down the road, maybe ports, maybe even military ports, you know, who knows, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And, you know, the Chinese are thinking longer term, I think, than, than, than many governments in the West. So I see that commitment. Of course, Africa isn't central. Of course, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, um, you know, um, India, um, um, you know, even Pakistan, where there's been sort of close relations between China uh, with China. And these countries may loom larger than you know Togo and Senegal and um, Rwanda and Botswana, etc. But I still think this place all those countries in sort of China's strategic thinking um, and where the strategic thinking is that framework and therefore money available and, and support from, you know, say the Chinese Exim Bank, then companies and provinces and even private companies will go. There'll be ups and downs, but I see it as a long-term trend. Okay. David Pilling is the Africa editor at the Financial Times in London. Uh, definitely one of the voices to watch in, in the editorial space uh, and a very, again, unique uh, perspective coming from uh, an international news agency. You can follow him at David Pilling. Uh, that's D-A-V-I-D-P-I-L-L-I-N-G over on Twitter. David, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. Kobus, an interesting contrarian viewpoint there. You know, we spoke with Kai Xue several months ago. Kai Xue, for those of you who follow the show, has been a regular guest of ours. He's an attorney based in Beijing who oftentimes advises international and Chinese companies on investment in Africa. And he has come out with a very strong kind of negative perspective. And yet David uh, seemed to have a contrarian view on that point. And I think it's very interesting that there doesn't seem to be a consensus as to whether or not we're seeing an uptick or a downtrend in the China-Africa investment relationship. I think one useful frame to look at this story is to ask whether the China-Africa relationship is its own story or a chapter in a bigger, longer story. Um, and what I mean is, is China investing and trading with Africa because Africa is a valuable market or, or is China trading with Africa 
as a testing ground for wider global expansion. Um, in the, some of David's uh, reporting, um, he mentioned that China is he frequently uses Africa as a form of as a kind of testing ground, and I've seen that in some of my own reading as well. Um, for example, China is rolling out. Um, you know, very interesting e-commerce payment methods in in Africa that they haven't tested in other richer markets, and in a lot of ways, Africa is a kind of a, a low risk market to 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 you know to roll out one of these one of these schemes, um, because if it fails, that's not a big PR disaster. It's actually not that big an investment comparatively. So Africa is a laboratory and for for Chinese companies to try things out in. And I think that might be a, a more useful way of, of looking at, or a, a useful way of looking at um, at this story, in the sense that what what Africa is isn't necessarily its own goal. It's a, a way. It's a station on the way to a larger global rollout for a lot of Chinese businesses. What it's do you think? Yeah, it's interesting that you picked up on the corporate side. I would say the testing ground is more aligned with what David was saying on the diplomatic, political, and even military space. So. Take you know the fact that the Chinese have more UN blue helmet peacekeepers in Africa than any other permanent member of the Security Council, and in so many ways, I think uh, the anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia, uh, the uh, South Sudanese deploy the deployment to South Sudan of uh, of Chinese combat troops in, in Mali as well. We're seeing that deployment in the DRC of, of Chinese medical personnel. There's really no other place in the world that the Chinese can deploy their military forces to get real-world training. And in Africa is, pro is, is a proving ground in that, in that case. Certainly you could not deploy Chinese PLA troops anywhere in Asia for UN missions. That would not go down well. Uh, you, you know, I'm trying to think of where else in the world, in Central Europe, uh, maybe, you know, where there are some UN missions that are there. That would be controversial. I mean, as well. imagine imagine that situation in Latin America or South America. It, it just wouldn't work. You know, it just wouldn't yes. work. And I think in so many ways, this is providing, you know, combat training. It's providing, you know, the medical teams their ability to to, to get experience, and then diplomatically, uh, the Chinese are becoming more, you know, more sophisticated, more subtle negotiators. You know, developing not an Africa policy, but bilateral policies with, with each individual country, and that's evolving, and then the lessons they're learning from there, they're applying other parts of the world. So that's why when I hear Kai Xue and other kind of commentators who take a purely economic view on the relationship, I, I tend to disagree with them and, and agree more with what David said, that this is a much bigger relationship beyond uh, pure economics. I agree. It also has a lot to do with the symbolic role of China in the world, um, you know, with with the the West in disarray, with a lot of a lot of the the assumptions about Western unity coming, you know, coming under question at the moment. Um, China presents this alternative view, an alternative global system view to to the rest of the world, and its relationship with Africa is, is crucial in that too. Um, you know, it, it, it it's it's this proving ground for China to show: look, we can build all these things, we can provide all these things. We we have a, a different vision of what the world could look like in fifty years. And um, lest we and, not forget yeah. on lest we not forget on that point that in in Pew public opinion surveys, Africa is the only part of the world where China either meets or exceeds the United States in favorability ratings. 
Uh, and that yes. is really important for for and that it's really important for the Chinese foreign policy self esteem. And, and I'm not saying any of this to kind of you know paper over the problems that the Chinese are having in Africa, whether it's from illegal gold mining in Ghana to the corruption that you know Sampa you know allegedly did in many parts of the uh, of the continent, and, and so many of the problems that we know that are there. But we're, we're talking in, in here in terms of what's actually working for the Chinese diplomatically. And in Africa, at least in terms of public opinion and soft power, as you've pointed out so many times, that the definition of soft power is now evolving beyond you know, movies and culture to an economic model. And a lot of people in Africa look to the reality of what China's built in 30 years and say, you know, we would like that as well, or at least a piece of that. And I think that's a form of soft power that shouldn't be uh, ignored. And in that case, that might explain why the Chinese are, in fact, uh, doing better in public opinion surveys there than anywhere else in the world. I completely agree. I think the West tends to underestimate the psychological toll that aid has taken on the developing world and on Africa particularly. The idea that we are always there to be helped by the West. That actually, I think maybe the West doesn't realize how bad that actually impacts on relationships with the West. Um, It's a very very complicated, resentment-fueled situation that I think the the global North doesn't 100% understand. Um, And China does. China understands exactly you know, what it means to be a poor country, you know, that is begging from other countries. And and its infrastructure field, development field rhetoric plays well in Africa. Like, because I think they come from similar similar kind of geopolitical places. Um, and it, it draws a lot on just simply the, the experience of having been poor in the world. Um, and that's something that the West just doesn't get. Okay. Well, there are some contrarian views throughout our discussion today coming from David pilling over at the uh, at the Financial Times, and certainly what we've been talking about does go against the grain of what you read in The Guardian, in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and in many cases, The, the Financial Times as well from their news side. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, we have social media platforms up and down the internet. Uh, LinkedIn, there's about 330,000 people that are following me on LinkedIn. You can look me up, Eric Olander. Uh, It's a fantastic discussion. And one of the amazing things about the LinkedIn page that we maintain is that it's really the only opportunity for Chinese and Africans to meet on social media. Because remember, everything is blocked in Facebook, uh, in China, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, but LinkedIn is not. And so this, uh, this platform that we've developed there with content and ideas in our shows is really a fantastic opportunity to, uh, to engage in a great discussion. And of course, we're on Facebook uh, and you can find both Kobus and I on Twitter. Uh, and uh, so we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.